Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. You know, there, are, uh, there are a lot of things in life, if you pay attention, that seem, seem small, seem like uh, insignificant, like they're not that big of a deal, and they turn out being much more important than they look. Um, there are a lot of recipes where there's some ingredients where you, you certainly don't add very much of some ingredient, but if you leave it out, you can tell at the end. I asked some friends for examples of this recently. Um, have you ever forgotten or not bothered to put the, the, the cotter pin through the bottom of your hitch pin sometime? You ever done that? I know our very own Josh Keating one time was pulling a strip tiller or something home from south of Juanita and turned around to find he was no longer pulling a strip tiller home from south of Juanita. It was gone somewhere. By the way, somebody's listening to this on the, on the internet right now that doesn't live in farm and ranch country, and they think I was speaking in tongues right there. The, uh, the cotter, welcome back, cotter, pin. Strip tilling, can you talk about that in church? Is that appropriate? Um, the, uh, uh, you know, your belly button doesn't look like a very big deal. I know mine's certainly not much to look at, but at one point, that was your lifeline, Right? You ever leave the plug out of your boat and then get on the water and you realize that's a pretty small thing that's a large detail? Well, this, the passage Jason read for us this morning out of Matthew 21, Jesus cleansing the temple or clearing the temple, I think is one of those passages that, that doesn't hold the importance that I think it should. It's, it's more significant than I think we give it credit for. It's not that it's obscure. It's not that nobody knows what it is. It just doesn't hold the place in the story of Jesus that I think it probably deserves. I think this story has become relegated to our go-to example of righteous anger. And even it's used as sort of my go-to excuse of why I can get really angry because after all, Jesus did that. He hulked out on the Temple Mount that one time. So it must be okay for me also. But this, this is a passage that the, the Old Testament pointed to and predicted. It's a passage that, that Jesus pointed to in his ministry. It was a goal of him getting to Jerusalem. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to this passage. Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament, the last uh, prophet and of the Old Testament before John the Baptist. And Malachi 3.1, here's what God said through the prophet Malachi, I'm about to send my messenger who will clear the way before me. Indeed, the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. 
And the messenger of the covenant, same person whom you long for, is certainly coming. That's one of the last prophecies about the Messiah. And it happens in the book of Matthew. The second part of this passage happens today in our passage. Indeed, the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. That's what happens today. That's fulfilled in Matthew 21. The messenger of the new covenant is Jesus. And this is God's promise. He is certainly coming and he shows up in our passage today. The first part of this passage already happened in the book of Matthew. My messenger who cleared the way before me was John the Baptist. He, here's how he prepared the way for Jesus. He told religious leaders and religious Israel and non-religious people, he called them away from the temple, come out into the wilderness and repent. Change your mind in a way that leads to changed behavior. Repent of your sin, but also repent of your righteousness. Repent. Change your mind about what it is that makes you okay before God. It's not going to be found in the temple anymore. That's John's ministry. Come away from the temple to meet with God, and I will point you, John said, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, so this passage was predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus sort of prepared for this passage. Back in chapter 9, Jesus commanded some people this. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Later in that chapter, Jesus would tell some people the reason that they are going to be rejected by God is because they didn't learn what this means. That God desires mercy and not sacrifice. That happens. Jesus is going to act this principle out. He desires mercy and not sacrifice. At the top of the Temple Mount, he's going to at least temporarily put a stop to sacrifices. I don't want them. And then he's going to have mercy on some blind and some lame people aside from sacrifices. Another reason this... Um, passages may be more important than it seems. Is this, this was like phase one of Jesus' Jerusalem plan. His ultimate goal for Jerusalem is the cross. That's what he's been predicting. But he had to do this temple thing first. This was like step one. It, it forces the hands of the religious leaders. This in, in humanly speaking, is one reason he was put on the cross. His enemies always wanted to kill him, Jesus' enemies, but after today's passage, they really, really, really want to kill him. And I think what he does today when he clears the temple, this is one thing his enemies use to sort of turn the tide of popular opinion against him. It takes a while to set in, but think about this. In the passage right before this, when we studied it last week, we usually celebrated at Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, Jesus, just, just before this passage, Jesus is riding into town on a baby donkey in a way that very clearly shows everyone that he thinks he's the Messiah. And people are cheering and shouting, oh, yes, the Messiah is here. It's go time. We're going to get a kingdom back. 
And they think Jesus is going to get to the top of the hill and attack the Romans and kick out the Romans and establish a kingdom. But what does he do? He gets to the top of the hill, all right, but he doesn't attack the Romans. He attacks their temple. He doesn't attack the unrighteous Gentiles. He attacks the righteousness of the Jews. And I don't think people, I think they're like, we didn't sign up for this. We want you to raise us up and make us great, not whatever else you have planned that involves the destruction of the temple. So that's the passage today, a preview of it anyway. Um, And I think it's important before we we dive in, I want to give you a little background about what was going on at the temple, what it's for. None of the gospel writers, they all tell this story, all four tell this story, but none of them give us any like background about what went on at the temple because for their original audiences, everybody knew. That was baked into their understanding of life in a way that it's not baked into us anymore. So, oh, I'll just let you, can you read that? I'll just let you read that. Can you? Okay, maybe not. Maybe I'll explain. Everything that happens today, it says, Matthew tells us it happened in the temple, but it didn't happen in in this spot right here. Like that's the the holy place and the most holy place. Everything that happens is out in these outer courts, okay? Often called the, the court of the Gentiles because anybody could go in that area. There were time periods where uh, they restricted. They didn't let crippled people or blind people go up there, but that's not in the, in the law. Anybody could go there. Now I'm going to s- zoom in. So that's what it looked like in Jesus' day. I'm going to zoom in on just the, the closer spot. Here's that, uh, the, the, the main part of the temple. Is this little building right here. It's divided in half in the back. This is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And that is where God's presence was. That was God's place, God's house. And nobody but nobody could go in there ever except one man, the high priest, on one day of the year called the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, could go in with a blood sacrifice uh, to make atonement for the sins of the people. And as you get, so one guy once a year, and as you get farther away from the, the most holy place, more people could be there. And as you get closer to the most holy place, fewer people were allowed to be there. So everything that happens today is out here in the the courts of the Gentiles. If you left the courts of the Gentiles and came through this little gate right here, this is called the court of women. Only, it wasn't just for women, only ceremonially clean Israelites, and I don't have time to explain to you what ceremonially clean means, but only ceremonially clean Israelites could be in this area. And then... If, as you get, again, closer to the most holy place, to go through here, the man of the family, the patriarch, the dad, or the grandpa would take your sacrifice, and you could go into this little strip right here called the court of Israel, and that's where you would meet a priest who would take your sacrifice onto the altar uh, and sacrifice it to God for your sin, your family, so you would confess your sins onto that animal. And they would do it. In here, nothing but priests. 
up these steps in these areas, even fewer priests. And there had to be very strict rules about who could be there and when and why. And all of this seems very uh, discriminatory, and it is, right? Fewer and fewer people have access. And it seems very bigoted to us. Because, man, anybody from any nation could be here. Only uh, Israelites full converts to their religion could be in here, and then only men here, and then only, and the priests were all from one family. Um, One family from one tribe. And here's what that whole system was meant to teach. God is unapproachable and scary. God is holy and righteous and perfect, and you ain't. And God, in his grace, though, has allowed himself to be approached by sinful people. But here's the rules. It's very exclusive. It's very bloody. It's very difficult. It stinks. It's like a slaughterhouse. And the whole thing taught that sin is an offense to God, and it costs death, and it costs blood. And, if you, and God allowed himself to be approached by sinful people, but not just any way you want. There was only one way, and this was the way in the old covenant. And all of this actually pointed toward Jesus. I'm getting to today's passage, because by today's passage, by the first century, um, we can gather this from our passage. We could also read it in Jewish histories called the Mishnah. By Jesus' day, the leaders of the temple had developed like a big scheme to make boatloads of money, to extort money from people based on this system in a way that if they were honest, people wouldn't be being extorted. Um, This was the way God allowed himself to be approached. Sin costs death. Um, And in the Old Covenant, an animal could pay the penalty your sins deserved. And temporarily, if you did that by faith, that act would cover your sins. But you couldn't just bring any old animal you want. Uh, if, you are a, a, um, if you're an animal producer, if you're, a, if you're in the livestock business, sometimes you decide there's an old cow that I don't want around anymore, right? And she cut to the chase, goes in the freezer in little packages, right? right? You, couldn't, you couldn't take that critter to the temple. Can't be like, well, she's not, you know, she's not fertile anymore for whatever reason, so I'll just take her to the temple. Or every time I get in the pen with her, she tries to murder me, so I'm going to take her to the sale barn. That didn't happen. You couldn't do that. Very strictly, God said, the animals that come to deal with your sin, there were lots of different offerings, but the ones that dealt with sin had to be a male animal, so a young bull, young goat, young uh, ram, and it had to be without blemish. It had to be perfect. Why? Because it all pointed to the one perfect male man named Jesus who would be the ultimate sacrifice. All this stuff pointed to Jesus. But you had to have a a perfect animal, if you're going to deal, get your sin dealt with. Here's the scheme by Jesus' day. Somebody figured out, wait a minute, the priests are the ones that say which animals are acceptable and which animals are not. 
Well, all we have to do is sell the only acceptable animals. And then we can charge whatever we want. And that's what was happening in Jesus' day. It went like this. You want your sin dealt with, don't you? You've got to get an animal into here that a priest will accept. All we have to do to make sure we can make as much money, we can print money here, is reject every animal that somebody brings and say, you have to use our concessions area, which is like what it was. They, the priest didn't literally sell the animals. It was a lot like, like going to a Husker game where you have to buy a hot dog for like nine bucks, right? You know why they're so expensive? It's not that the university is actually selling hot dogs. They've sold somebody the right to sell hot dogs. And they've paid so, money, so much money just to be there to sell you hot dogs, they have to charge nine bucks to pay, pay the uh, university. And they sold concessions, animal concessions, buy your acceptable animal here areas. That's what it was. That's the scheme. So, by, so when Jesus gets up there, that's, that's what we read about in, in Matthew uh, 21, 12. Jesus entered the temple area, the temple courts, and he drove out all of those who were selling and buying in the temple courts. That refers to everybody. Then there's a couple of people that get special mention. There's another part of the scheme where they weren't selling animals. They were changing money. Here's where that came from. The law said all the business conducted, if you want to bring a financial offering to the temple, you had to use the temple shekel, which was, it's just like a different kind of money, like the dollar, the yen, the euro, the shekel. It was not widely used in the Roman Empire. So if what you wanted to do before you could buy an animal, or if you wanted to give a financial offering, you had to go to the money changers and exchange your denarii or whatever into shekels. They did that at ex exorbitant rates. So Jesus turns their tables over, and then one more group gets special ire from Jesus, and that's the people who are selling doves. The law said, because God is gracious, if you can't afford a perfect young bull, a perfect young ram, which is expensive, when you think about this, those of you who are in the livestock business, you take your best bull, and just take it and kill it. That's expensive. God said, poor folks can bring doves. And people got doves by trapping doves with, with nets. There's lots of them out there. And the fact they were selling doves lets us know they were even extorting the poor. The idea, how ridiculous is this? The idea that there can be a, an acceptable and an unacceptable dove. I've seen lots of doves. They all look exactly alike. And so they get a special dose of Jesus' anger because the poor are being exploited. And all of that is why Jesus sort of hulks out on the Temple Mount. And he, I think and this is a miracle. I don't, want, I don't want to go back to the chart, but that was a big area where all this is going on. And by himself, there's security there. He drives them all off the Temple Mount by himself. And then he says a couple things that are interesting. First, I love this. 
He said to them, it is, I'm doing this because now my house will be called a house of prayer. You guys are turning it into a den of robbers, uh, the, the cave where thieves meet and count their loot. And he says, that's not what this place is for. My house will be a house of prayer. You know why that's interesting? I just explained it. What was the temple for? Was it primarily for prayer? What was the temple for? It was for those sacrifices. And when Jesus chases all the animal sellers out and turns over the money changers tables and all that, he says, my house is going to be a house of prayer. Now, you know why that's interesting? Jesus puts an end to sacrifices and says, from now on, my house will be about prayer. People going directly to God, direct access to God. You know how that's possible? Because we don't need sacrifices anymore. You know why that's possible? Because the one sacrifice that was required has already been made by Jesus at the cross. And now my house, this is still happening, my house, Jesus's house, God's house is a house of prayer. Where's that? Where is God's house? Are you sitting, is this God's house, this, this metal chief building, Quonset shed thing we got going here, is this God's house? Is there another building in town that's God's house? No. According to the New Testament, what is God's temple? If you believe in Jesus, you are God's house. Our bodies now are the temple of God. And Jesus puts an end to sacrifice by becoming the ultimate sacrifice and says, now my house, which is me or you, if we have placed our faith in Jesus and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, have direct access to the God of the universe because our sacrifice has already been made in the proper way. Everything else that happens in this passage today are responses to Jesus hulking out at the top of the Temple Mount. There are some people who respond to to Jesus. Then the religious leaders respond to their response, and then Jesus responds to the response of the religious leaders. The first people. So Jesus has just done... Uh, Palm Sunday, rides into town. He goes and wrecks the place at the, t- at the top of the Temple Mount. In verse 14, then some blind and crippled people come to Jesus in the temple courts and he heals them. Now there's a much better use of God's place than what was going on before. And again, he likes mercy, not sacrifice. He puts an end to sacrifice and he starts having mercy The next people that respond uh, chronologically, we don't read about them next, but there are children. There are children crying out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. There were little kids who are shouting praise to Jesus, calling him very clearly the Messiah. They're saying, save us, Messiah. And now the, the religious leaders respond to everything they've seen. Notice this. They've seen everything that Jesus has done. They've seen the angry stuff Jesus has done. But they've also seen, verse 15 says, the wonderful things Jesus did. They've seen him giving giving blind people their sight, allowing crippled people 
to walk. And the religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask him this question, verse 16. Do you hear what these kids are saying? Now, what are they really asking there? Are they really asking whether or not Jesus can hear? No, here's what they're asking. Those kids right here in God's house are calling you the Christ, the Messiah. Are you going to let that continue? That's the question. Are you going to let that continue? I love Jesus' response. He says, yes. (laughs) You going to let that continue? Yep. Yes, I am. And here's why. Have you never read? By the way, when Jesus says, have you never read? He's always talking about the scriptures. And I love it when he says it to the religious leaders. This is a real dig. Don't you guys read the scriptures? The answer to that is, yes, they do. Have you never read, out of the mouths of children and nursing infants, you have prepared praise for yourself? You guys ever read that verse? I said, yes. Um, If you grew up in, in church or grew up in sort of our brand of a church, you know the psalm that Jesus quotes right there. It comes from Psalm 8. We used to sing it in a round. It goes, O Lord, our Lord, how... Somebody knows this. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Remember that one? That's, that's what Jesus quotes from, that psalm. King David wrote that thousand years before Jesus. He said, it's a psalm of praise. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you are going to bring praise. I'm pointing it with my finger like you can see that. Um, uh, and you are going to bring praise for yourself out of the mouths of children. Who did David write Psalm 8 about and to? Yahweh, El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty, God of Israel, creator of heavens and earth. Now, do you see what Jesus does with that? They say, are you going to let these kids call you the Messiah right up here on the Temple Mount after you made a mess of the place? And he says, yes. You know why? Because a thousand years ago, the scriptures said the God of the universe is going to bring praise out of the mouths of little children. And it just happened. Don't let anybody ever convince you that Jesus didn't call himself God. If this was the only place we ever had, it would be enough. But he just says, Psalm 8 was about me. Jesus calls himself Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And a thousand years ago, I promised I would bring praise out of, I would do things so wonderful, it would make little children sing my praises. And you know what he did that was so wonderful? He put an end to animal sacrifices, which is a great thing. Like I said, the religious leaders already wanted to kill Jesus, but now they really, really, really want to kill Jesus. He's attacked the system they are on the top of, And he has called himself their God. Whose house did he say he was in, by the way? My house. They charge him with blasphemy. And you know what? If Jesus ain't God, they're right. 
Because Jesus is either a blasphemer or he's God. And that's the only two choices. And that's the whole story for this morning. What does it teach us? Why is it important? First, as I've mentioned a couple of times, it is a visible, like, object lesson that God desires mercy more than sacrifice. In fact, the fact that God accepted sacrifices at all were because of his mercy. God desired mercy more than sacrifice. Jesus, he shows us this by putting an end to the sacrifices and then having mercy on blind and crippled people. But there's more than that going on. The religious leaders do this backwards. They desire sacrifice more than mercy. Why? Why do the religious leaders want the sacrificial system to continue? One reason is they're getting rich. They're at the top of that system and they don't want it challenged. They're extorting money left and right. But there's another reason. A reason that you and I can still sort of fall into. It is really easy to desire sacrifice more than depending upon mercy. Here's how we do this. Religion, almost everyone knows there's a God out there somewhere. Right? There are very few people who just think, who really believe all of this just started by accident, out of chaos. Like life came from no life. I've shared the story of the, the dean of my seminary, my advisor, Dr. Bahrain. He was, he, was an, he was an atheist and a chemist. That was his career. But what kept grating on him was this idea that when I put this chemical with that chemical, they always do the same thing every time. I can predict what's going to happen because everything is so ordered. But I believe all of this order came out of chaos. And he couldn't make it work. And he started searching. He decided there had to be a creator. And he started searching for who that creator might be. And he met Jesus. And now he's the dean of a seminary in uh, Kansas City. Almost everyone understands there's a God out there. There has to be. And if there's a God out there, I better figure out what he wants. So that I, because, and we also know Whatever that God's like, I'm not like him. I fall short. And here's what we want. Here's what we want. I want somebody to tell me what I have to do so that God will be okay with me. Let's call that sacrifice. Back then, what do I have to kill? Tell me what to kill, I'll kill it. Right? Show me the holy place with the holy man at the holy time, and show me the holy things I have to do. Tell me what to do. I can wrap my head around things to do. Tell me where to go, how often to go there, what I need to do. I'll do it so that God will leave me alone the rest of the week. 
We desire sacrifice more than coming to God and just throwing ourselves at his mercy. That's the first thing this passage, I think, teaches us, is that God wanted to have mercy. He desires mercy over sacrifice. And then once I'm affected by God's mercy, guess what he wants from me? He did, Jesus had no interest in making a religious system that would mimic the Old Testament uh, temple system where you just do religious rituals and you're fine. Jesus started a, a relationship with people who threw themselves on his mercy. And he wants to see mercy. He wanted to have mercy on us so that he could see mercy from us. And all of our good deeds and good works, they're important if they're fueled by the right fire, so to speak. I don't do good deeds and good things so that God is happy with me at the end of the day or at the end of my life. You know what that would be called? Sacrifices. If the good things I do are still trying to impress and please God, they are sacrifices. Sacrificing my time, what I'd rather be doing, my finances, but I got to do this or else God's going to fry me to make up for the bad stuff I've done. No. Once I enter into the mercy of Jesus Christ, here's what my good works and good deeds become. These don't get me anywhere before God. The only sacrifice that ever needed to be made has already been made. It was already accepted. And now I literally can do things simply out of mercy to someone else. I don't get anything out of the deal. I don't do good deeds. Hey, God, you noticing this? You seeing how good I'm being? I can just actually do something for you knowing God I'll not get me any closer to God than I get by believing in Jesus Christ. God desires mercy because he's already performed sacrifice. And the second thing and the last thing that this passage teaches us is that Jesus changed the rules for approaching an unapproachable God, if, if we don't get close to God based on the religious things that we do or the good deeds that we do, how do we get there? What happens to our sin? Or has God just gotten super chill over the centuries and he doesn't care anymore about our sins? No, God is still unapproachable and scary. I say this all the time, but if we are saved, if we're redeemed, guess what we're saved from? We are saved from God. Because if we show up before God and our sin is still on our own head, there will be hell to pay, literally. Jesus changed how we approach God. By, and we see it in this passage. We approach God through Jesus Christ only. God is still, just like in the temple, you want your sin dealt with? you got to approach me through the process I have laid out. There still is a process. It's just faith in Jesus Christ. Not going to a temple that hasn't existed since AD 70. There's still only one way. His name is, is Jesus. And then here's how we approach him and how 
Jesus showed it today. Did you pay attention in the passage who came to Jesus in the temple courts after he made a mess of the place? It was people with real problems. They were blind. They were crippled. They could not ever, they could not ever go any farther than the courts of the Gentiles because they were not ceremonially clean. They were blind and crippled. They couldn't get close to God until Jesus showed up. And the people who know they have problems and know Jesus is their only hope are always the people Jesus accepts and makes whole. Jesus is how we approach God and he will take anybody who understands. I have, my, my biggest problem is not that I'm blind or lame. It's that I've sinned. It's that I fall short of the glory of God and my sin is still on my own head and I need someone else to save me, and that's Jesus. Hebrews 10, we'll end here. Here's what, there's only been one sacrifice ever that ever forgave anybody. Every sacrifice in the old covenant just pointed to what Jesus did for us at the cross. And the author of Hebrews in the New Testament says, we have been sanctified, we've been made clean through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How many times? Once for all. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the God. Sitting down meant the work day is over. My work is finished. It is finished. And he's waiting from that time until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How many great sacrifices do I need to make to be acceptable to God? How much money do I have to give? How many things do I have to give up? How much suffering do I need to suffer for God to be pleased with me and make me be acceptable to him? None. Every amount of suffering that was ever required was poured out on him at the cross once for all. All I need to do is just like those blind and crippled people that day, drag myself before the Lord Jesus and say, you are the one I need. Your sacrifice is the one that pays for my sins. And he will make you whole. He may not fix all your problems now. If you were blind before you come in, you'll still probably be blind when you leave here this morning. But ultimately, he'll heal you. He'll save you from the wrath of the Father that he took on himself. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for showing us visibly your desire for mercy on us. Thank you that you showed us you accept people who did not bring sacrifices. They just drug themselves to Jesus. God, we have nothing to bring you. We have nothing that would impress you. We couldn't be good enough. We couldn't be religious enough. We couldn't be nice enough. We would be lost if you did not become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God, I pray if, there's, if there are, are folks here this morning who have never drugged themselves before Jesus and just 
behold you, Lord. I believe that that sacrifice of Jesus, I understand now. You've helped me to see, Lord. I, I know I'm crippled. I'm blind by my own sin and shame. Will you save me based on the fact that Jesus has already served my punishment? And I pray you'd bring those of us here who haven't done that to that place where we would drag ourselves before Jesus thank him for being the sacrifice we deserve and we need. We, God, thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and finish with us.